0: My mom gifted Martha and I some crystal. So whenever my mom came over to our house, she liked to have her drink in her glasses that she had gifted to us. Over many, many, many years, you know, she decided that the drink she liked at our house was a Negroni. Now I didn't bore her with any of the gory details as to how many variations, you know, we were on and barrel aging or any of that stuff. I just made her a Negroni and served it to her in her glass. So she went to a very fancy Italian restaurant in her town at Greenwich, Connecticut. And yeah, she sent her Negroni back three times. And finally, the manager said, you know, maybe you should have a glass of wine. And she's like, well, you can't make a Negroni like my son. And, you know, a Negroni, you know, pretty much is an easy drink to make. It's only got three ingredients in equal parts gin, vermouth, and Campari. But once you've had our Negroni and it's been barrel aged, you know, you're spoiled. So, yeah, it was definitely um, a turning point
1: for me. Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, people who've taken the risk to figure out what they want to do and have realized that thing. Today we're talking with Matt Ellenthal, who is who is a senior executive CMO COO, skilled in leveraging business opportunities into viable products and operations. That is important because he utilized that experience to launch an award winning premium barrel age ready to serve cocktail business. Matt. Welcome, and I want to get into the 100 point Manhattan too.
0: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, um, a great honor to be here with you. Um, I wish we could be in person, but hopefully sometime soon. So, uh, we entered Barrowsmith um, into a bunch of different contests um, uh, US based, uh, international, and we won all sorts of awards. And, you know, I just sort of got, I don't know, kind of used to it. Um, but I went out to Vegas about a month ago, and while I was out there, I figured I would meet up with the folks that run the Proof Awards. And Proof, obviously, is a play on alcohol proof, you know, alcohol by volume. And so I met the executive director of the Proof Awards, and she was so excited to meet me and so happy about our Beryl Smith Manhattan winning their Century 100-point award. And I was just kind of nonplussed about it. Reason is I was ignorant, I had no idea what it meant until she explained to me how their awards work, which I didn't know. I just shipped bottles off, wrote a check, and you know, figured we'd get our little medal, and that would be that. So proof is unlike a bunch of other awards in that it is judged by industry insiders, but only buyers. So no distributors, no manufacturers, no suppliers, only. Uh, uh business buyers of alcohol. Um, so it's got that kind of bend to it. Um, some of the other awards are only consumers, but most of the awards are, you know industry insiders, so there's always going to be some sort of bias there. And all their awards uh, are uh, segmented into um, uh, by two categories: masked and unmasked. So masked means you're tasting it out of a little glass or a little bottle and you have no idea what it is. Unmasks means, you know, they have the bottle in front of you, so they're judging you on the packaging as well. Um, so for the Manhattan, we got a hundred points uh, century award in the mask category. Um, and what that means is that uh, they have 80 judges, uh, uh, industry buyers, and at least 90% of those 80 judges have to give uh the uh, cocktail or the spirit 100 points on a zero to 100 point scale so what that basically means is that of the 80 judges that tasted barrelsmith manhattan blind not knowing what they were who produced what they were drinking 70 of those 80s gave us 100 points so i don't know about you but i don't know how many times you get 70 people to agree on anything let alone on whether or not this is something that they think tastes great so yeah that was just kind of like this little uh um, a light bulb going over my head when she explained all this to me I'm like oh now I know why it's a big deal
1: that's just really great and so you're saying we're good is what you what you're saying to her
0: yeah i um, again I just become immune to this because I've been you know doing this for over a decade you know first for just friends and family and people are always coming over to our house and like they're going wow you really make a good dinner or wow you make a great cocktail or this is fantastic wine. It must have cost a million dollars. I'm like, yeah, it cost like twelve dollars ten years ago, but you know, whatever. So yeah, I uh, I I'm not jaded by it, but I definitely take it for granted that yeah, it's gonna people are gonna taste our cocktails and they're gonna go, oh yeah, this tastes really really good.
1: I like this. Okay, you've got to take take a little bit of a step back and tell us what your cocktails are because you said your Manhattan won the hundred points. And, yeah. and really, they called that a unanimous decision, right? So this was, this was a really, really big deal to get the top, top prize. But at the same time, your thing is a little bit unique. What you do, the cocktails that you're making are unique, aren't they? Like, why did you get into it? I mean, you said you do this with friends and family all the time. You have people over, you entertain. How did this become a business? How did these people have the opportunity to judge you at a hundred point Manhattan.
0: So when we created the company and my wife hates it when I say this, but the last thing I wanted to do was go into the spirits business. I've done a bunch of entrepreneurial things, always in regulated industry, transportation, telecom, um, casino, lottery, insurance, you know, really alcohol. Could there be anything even more? you know, regulated than alcohol. Um, Oh, I forgot health, uh, healthcare too. So yeah. So, I mean, I just know how hard it is to deal with all this stuff. Um, And I also didn't want to take my fun hobby and turn it into work. So like, you know, a million years ago, I was a ski instructor and I thought, well, that's going to be a great job. I did it all through high school and in college. And after college, I'm like, Yeah. I like skiing. I like the mountain world and lifestyle. I should just be a full-time ski instructor. Oh my God. Did I hate skiing? I mean, you know, winters in North America, winters back to back in the Southern hemisphere, you know, on a day off, if I even had one, would I want to put my skis on? Absolutely not. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go do laundry or take a nap, anything but skiing. So I was just sort of scared that my passion would, uh, Turn into something that I uh, didn't enjoy, so I really resisted taking um, our barrel aging of cocktails for friends and family and turning it into a business. But uh, man, the peer pressure to do it—you um, know—just it, it just forced me into it, and uh, I'm glad that uh, finally I said yes.
1: You—we talked about the Manhattan. You do a, Negron, a Negroni. Negroni.
0: Yeah, so we have three cocktails. They're all 100-year-old recipes. The oldest is the uh, Manhattan. So like 1860s, 1880s, invented in New York City. Um, our Manhattan's is two parts rye whiskey to one part uh, vermouth. Um, and then it's finished with a little bit of orange bitters after it's aged in the barrel. Um, the next oldest cocktail we have is the Negroni. Uh, early 1900s, named after Count Negroni who uh, was Italian, educated in London, took a fancy for gin, went back to Venice where he lived. There was a cocktail called the Americano um, and he substituted uh, one of the weak liqueurs in the Americano with much stronger gin and it became a Negroni. And then our Negroni is equal parts London dry gin, which is just a style of gin, doesn't mean it's made in London, Uh, Rosso vermouth, And then Martha Outlaw's liqueur, which is a bitter liqueur, an Amaro-style liqueur named after my wife, Martha. And then the last one we have is the Boulevardier from the 1920s. Um, Back in the 20s, if you were in the newspaper business in Paris, um, you'd have to have a cocktail to be associated with your rag. So um, uh, the American that started the magazine, uh, the newspaper, the Boulevardier, Needed a cocktail, so he took the Negroni, and since he was American, he subbed out the gin for American bourbon whiskey, and the Boulevardier was born. And our Boulevardier is equal parts straight bourbon whiskey, Rosso Vermouth, Martell Liqueur.
1: And then, and the Negroni, there, there, you, you said that this was based on the Italian count, but then there, there there is some controversy with this as well, right? That there's a there's a French guy who claimed that it was it was really his family and. So, I mean, it's kind of the, the intrigue of, of drinks in some ways too, isn't it? Yeah,
0: some of the stuff is just crazy. Like So traditionally, a, a Negroni has to be made with Campari. And I mean, Campari is pretty omnipresent. It's a very orange, very astringent, bitter liqueur, an Italian style Amaro. Um, and it's great. I'm a huge Campari fan. It's like my, one of my summer drinks, Campari and soda with slice of orange, very low alcohol, very refreshing, you know. You can drink one and um, you know not feel the effects or what have you. Um, but after we started the barrel aging process, I figured uh, just through trial and error at home that um, barrel aging the uh, Campari just the astringency just didn't do well in the barrel. It sort of uh, didn't get a, a smoothed out and balanced like everything else. And so at the end of the barrel aging, it was way too forward and out of balance. But Campari itself is you know, the secret Italian family recipe, you know, where only four people or something in the history of the world know have ever known how to make a park. Um, But, you know, there's other examples of that too, like chartreuse, these monks in France. Um, you know, a highlight for me was a couple of years ago, watching the Tour de France on, uh, on TV, and the tour went by the, uh, the chartreuse uh, uh, making monks facility. And I thought, well, that's really cool. Um, and they've been making it for 500 years. Um, so yeah, there are all these like secret ingredients and myths um, behind, uh, uh, you know, some of the liqueurs and spirits. And then also the cocktails themselves. I mean, nobody can agree what's really an old fashioned. I mean, there's a Midwest version of the old fashioned. There's the East Coast version of old fashioned. You know, there, there's, and people take, you know, uh, take umbrage if you don't think the old fashioned is what they think so it's just kind of it's just kind of crazy so i like to look at it look there's tradition but there's no rules so you know we um certainly try to abide by the tradition but we don't necessarily abide by every rule i mean there are folks that will taste our negroni or you know just looking at the negroni and they'll go well it's not a negroni it's not orange right well it doesn't have campari in it so you know you know if it tastes good drink it
1: Right, and and so the barrel aging part of it is something that's unique, right? Because it's not like you're taking all of these parts and making a drink. You're you're effectively making the drink and then putting it in the oak barrels. Is that right? Yeah. So we pre
0: blend all the ingredients together, um, and then we uh, place them in fifty uh, three gallon oak barrels, um, and then we rest uh, the finished drink in oak and we taste it uh, on a regular basis. And when we think it's just perfect, we disgorge uh, and bottle it. Um, So yeah, uh, uh, we certainly didn't invent the idea of uh, uh, aging drinks in wood. I mean, that goes back, you know, 500 or 1500 years. Um, And we didn't even invent like barrel aging in Negroni. I discovered it somewhere else, did a bunch of internet research and just through trial and error, you know, literally over 10 years, you know, came up with something that just everybody that came to my house just got, you know, got their socks blown off. You know, it was just like, wow, this is really good. I mean, we hear all the time, we probably poured thousands, maybe tens of thousands of samples for folks in the last couple of years. And people are like, well, I don't like gin. I don't want to taste the Negroni. And we're like, we, you know, here's a little tiny cup. You know, if you don't like it, you can spit it out. If you do like it, you can spit it out. doesn't matter. And they're like, oh, This is great. I hate Jim, but I really like this Negroni.
1: Where is the manufacturing and how involved are you in the manufacturing? Are you guys like, is it you and Martha running the place? How does that work?
0: So after I got convinced to uh, at least pursue this as a business idea, uh, Martha and I really took it from like kind of a case study perspective and we sort of built a case study. Could we make a business out of this from a, Financial perspective. Um, so we interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs in the in the industry, people that were making beer, people that were making wine, people that were making spirits, and we found uh, that a lot of folks were very product centric. You know, they were just driven to make the best wine or the best gin or the best double IPA or whatever. Um, and that's not necessarily a good recipe for a business. Um, you know, to be 100% product centric. So we looked at it like, all right, well, if we're gonna be a successful business, we have to be scalable. We have to have a secure supply chain. We have to have partners because we can't do it all ourselves. And we also didn't start the business with any money. So, you know, we didn't have uh, like this war chest that we go buy a factory or build a factory and go hire 20 people. So to answer your question, what we did is we assembled a bunch of uh, uh, partnerships with folks in the industry Um, pretty much third parties that uh, uh, help with the manufacturing process each step of the way. So, you know, we purchase our base spirits from an award-winning distillery. Uh, We make our own vermouth. We make our own Martha Laws liqueur, not because we want to, but we couldn't find anything that was up to our standards um, and that, you know, filled our, you know, business uh, requirements um and so what we do we do all this work at what's called a co-packer so a lot of uh, brands that you know both alcoholic and non-alcoholic uh uh um beverages they're uh, formulated and packed at a co-packer um so they go to a third party that just has big canning lines big bottling lines just a huge factory that makes drinks and they put you know anybody's label or brand on it so we found a real crazy group of artisanal cocktail wizards. um, And they're our co-packer. And And so what that means is that we use their facility to receive all the raw materials, blend it to our spec, um, put it in barrels.
1: Blend it to our spec, does that mean that you're doing the blending?
0: Yeah, so it's to our recipe and our formula. And by the way, all the stuff has to be approved by the federal government, the TTB, the um, uh, taxation alcohol something board. I don't remember what it stands for. Um, but yeah, it took like a year and a half to get our ingredients approved by the TTB because they didn't know what some of them were. And, you know, it's like, well, the FDA says this is acceptable or grass generally regarded as safe. Um, but the TTB is like, uh, no, we don't know what that is. <laughs> so yeah, so we have a formula, a recipe. But, you know, every batch is a little different. Every batch of barrels, you know, comes in a little different. Um, you know, our wine has a seasonality to it. Each vintage of our California wine is, is slightly different. You know, our base spirits um, might have some variation. So we're tasting everything and we're making, you know, sort of final decisions because we want each batch to be consistent but also we want every batch to be better than the previous one. I think we're sort of at the point of diminishing returns now, um, but uh, we're definitely getting the consistency, uh, but it's hard to get it every batch to be better than the last one. So just as good works
1: for us. Well, that's, you're getting to a good problem that, you're, that you've, you've gotten good enough that you, that you can't really get that much better, which is, which is great. And so the oak barrels, what are you using for, for oak barrels?
0: So, you know, one of the things I learned, um, I visited a cooperage in uh, Kentucky. Um, it was the coolest thing ever. I mean, a cooperage is basically a sawmill. Um, logs come in off a truck. They're rough cut on, you know, with the, you know, think of like a cartoon sawmill, you know, with somebody strapped to a piece of wood going towards this ginormous saw. So anyway, all the wood is like rough uh, cut um, to stave shapes. And then they put it on pallets and they stick it in the parking lot for anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months to six years. So they age all the wood and then they bring it back inside and then they cut it to spec and they turn it into barrels. Just the coolest thing. And uh, so you can use any kind of wood you want. There's a certain advantages to oak and all the wood has to be cut cut quarter sawn whatever that means so the grain
1: lines up well like across the the, like like diagonally on the grain is that what you're saying kind of thing
0: yeah like a 45 degree angle to it and all it has to do is so that you can make a barrel without any glue or nails or screws or anything so the wood it just holds everything together um so i did a lot of research on barrels um and uh um So, depending on what you're making, uh, you can use what's called virgin oak barrel, so it's never seen any liquid in it, and you can have uh, different levels of char, like zero means no char, five is like alligator char, they literally burn the inside of the barrel.
1: Um, uh, Give it that smoky kind of taste, right? Yeah, it actually, I think what it does
0: is it's the Maillard reaction and it caramelizes the sugars in the wood. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, You get sort of a charcoal filtering effect. And at the same time, you also get like vanilla uh, flavors that come through that caramelization. Um, And then you can, and then like in the wine industry, you know, you can sometimes they just only uh, char the bottom or the top of the barrel, like a toasted head Chardonnay. That just means that they only charge the top of the barrel um, to you know, get the right sort of a, a flavor there. Um, the problem with using a virgin oak barrel is one, they're wicked expensive, um, two, they're dry. So like immediately you lose 20% of your uh, alcohol because um, it swells the wood, it fills the Absolutely. barrel. Okay. You can try all different techniques. You can soak them in water, you can steam them and what have you to try and minimize that. Um, but you're going to lose a lot of liquid, i.e. product, i.e. profit, um, if it's going into the wood. And then the other thing, too, is virgin oak is just like, you know, it takes years and years and years for there to achieve that taste balance when you're putting something in virgin oak. I mean, that's why you have, you know, you know whiskeys that are four years old or six years old or 12 years old, what have you. And then there's the whole environmental thing, too. So. Like when I was in Kentucky, um, I learned that 100,000 barrels a month are exported to Scotland. That's a lot of, that's a lot of empty 53 gallon whiskey barrels. Yeah. So, so to be called bourbon in the United States, there's a bunch of different requirements, but the one that's pertinent to this conversation is it has to be placed in a virgin oak barrel. Scotch whiskey does not have that requirement. So the Scotch whiskey manufacturers buy all the extra bourbon barrels from America, ship them to Scotland, and age them in a once-used whiskey barrel. So it's much more economical for them to do that than to have a cooperage in anywhere and buy virgin barrels. So we use freshly dumped, once-used, side fill oak barrels, whiskey barrels. And for our Manhattan, we use rye whiskey barrels um, because our base spirit is rye. And for our uh, Boulevardier and our Negroni, we use bourbon whiskey barrels. And the reason why I emphasize side fill is that you can fill a barrel through the bunghole in either the side or the top. Um, But our co-packer, Prefers that they're side filled. They're easier to handle to fill and empty. Now, the only reason I know this is that we got a shipment that was half and half. And so it's like, oh, that's a pain in the neck. Let's not do that anymore.
1: Okay. Interesting. That is so one of the things that's kind of interesting with, with alcohol, right? I mean, with with this whole process, are those little things, those little nuances, the the, the side fill versus the end fill. And, and, but it extends to the rest of it too, right? I mean, this is just like, how do you, how do you mix your, your drinks with ice and, and, and those kinds of things, like there's, there's a process, which is part of the cool process in some ways is this, I'm imagining that this is some of what brought you to the idea of it, or maybe brought you to bringing people to your home to serve them drinks,
0: well, it's been a, <clears throat> a long circuitous route from me being a bartender at the Alibi in 1983 and '84. Um, you know where you know the I think the the top drink was probably a BV and Sprite uh, College. Um, so uh, um, yeah, uh, I think it really happened when I moved to Seattle. Um, so when Martha and I were dating, she was living in San Francisco, I was living in Seattle, and uh, she introduced me to going to wineries. Um, which I thought was just a cool, fun thing to do. Um, But like then I started learning about wine. And so she'd come up to Seattle. We'd go to Eastern Washington. I'd go down to San Francisco. We'd go to Napa and Sonoma. And I I just fell in love with the uh, intricacies of the winemaking process and uh, the result and how, you know, no two bottles are the same, let alone no two wines are the same and so on. And then uh, living in Seattle, I mean, I don't think I grew up in a food uh, oasis uh, or a food desert, sorry, but Seattle was definitely an uh, oasis because I was just, you know, just whacked in the palate by so many different influences. So the wine part, you know, uh, being on the Pacific Rim and a major hub and all the seafood, um, it really just uh, opened this door for me that, uh, you know, I you know, close behind me and never looked back. I took cooking courses. We'd go to the market. I started fishing and hunting and, uh, yeah, it's just crazy. Um, but you know, I really, really came to appreciate not just the end result of food, wine, and cocktails, but the process, right? You know, so preparing the meal or buying a wine and drinking it 10 years later um, after meeting the winemaker and having that just be sort of a trip down memory lane or experimenting with, you know, recipes and formulas and having it fail and throwing it away and then trying again, like Martha always like gets really upset. Like we'll open a bottle of wine that we might've had 10 or 20 years. And there's a probably one in five chance that it's not drinkable. I mean, it's a handmade product. It's, you know, subject to all sorts of wacky things that can happen to it and when every when the stars line up it's just sublime when they don't you pour it down the drain and you just move on but i mean just makes not just martha but a lot of people cringe like you know when i make a cocktail and taste it and uh you know make a funny face and pour it in the sink they're like well i would have drank that i'm like yeah you could have or you could have something better you know Uh,
1: so there's there's a there's the love that goes into it, the love of the process of what you're doing, but then you you can remove the emotional part and just pour it down the drain too. How does that how does that fit within within your mind, within your your body, and everything, or is that or are they all the same thing?
0: No, I think um, it's just because like throughout my business career, you know they've all, I've only worked for entrepreneurs or at entrepreneurial companies. And there's something, uh, uh, a benefit I learned a long time ago to fail fast. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, you can't change what's happened in the past. You can only change what's happened in the future. So I don't take it personally. Like I made all sorts of mistakes, right? Um, And, you know, a bad cocktail is a pretty small mistake to make, Um, you know, a bad bottle of wine or buying a bad case of wine and, you know, sitting on it for X number of years and then finding out that, yeah, well, we should have drank this eight years ago because it's undrinkable now. I mean, those are just the, those are just small things that you just have to go, okay, well, for every one of those, there's another one that was a, a big success. But for the barrelsmith process, we hired a, a flavor scientist to help us take our home recipes and commercialize it. And I think we drove that guy crazy. I mean, just insane because we were so nitpicky and so convinced that it had to be perfect to our palates. And we didn't have the vocabulary, not being neither of us you know, being in the flavor industry um, or you know, in the spirit supply chain. Um, so yeah, it was really, really hard, um, for him to adapt to us, not knowing how to describe what we were trying to accomplish, but also just being such perfectionist too and going, yeah, you know, our 38th version of this is still no good.
1: How does it work with combining the palettes? Cause there are two of you and you've said that Martha has a much better palette than you do. Yeah. So yeah, should you end up agreeing on like, this is the formula. This is what we Uh, we I
0: don't think Martha and I agree on anything. I mean, it's total yin and yang for sure. So Martha's uh, definitely blessed with much better um, uh, uh, teeth uh, and genetics from genetics and palate than I am. I think I have better skin and a better memory. So like, I remember like, you know, when we went to this winery and we sat on the bed of the pickup truck and had tacos and we bought this case of wine and we get, I grab a bottle and that memory comes back where there's no recollection of it at all, but you can taste some wine and really discern um, and describe the, the flavors um, that are going on there. So yeah, we're we definitely are not, uh, we're definitely two sides of the coin. Like I really prefer Burgundy, Pinot Noir uh, based wines. Martha really likes Cabernet Sauvignon and, you know, big California wines. Um, So I get in trouble all the time because, you know, you only buy the kind of wines you like. That's what she tells me. I'm like, well, nobody broke your fingers and prevented you from, you know, ordering what you want. Um, So, uh, uh, yeah, I I think that's what makes Beryl Smith, like, have an almost universal appeal because it's not... I mean, we both had the same goal at the end of the day to make a fantastic cocktail. Um, And obviously that's 100% subjective, Um, you know, but, you know, I I think like our proof award where we got 70 out of 80 judges to give us 100 points, you know, we were able to create something that, you know, 90% of professional buyers thought was 100 points, which is just pretty, pretty cool. So yeah, a lot of back and forth arguing, uh, a lot of retasting, you know, a lot of two steps forward, then three steps back, revisiting stuff, um, you know, just to get it just right. We've been working on three new cocktails now for a year and a half. And, uh, you know, I don't even, you know, I don't, I don't even know how close we are to getting there. Um, You know, there's business reasons for us to introduce three new cocktails um, that are, quite a a departure from our Negroni Bouvardier in Manhattan, but, uh, man, it's hard, you know, to get something that both of us say is great because if it's not great, why would we make it?
1: Well, this is back to your ski instructor analogy, right? There are a lot of people who would say, well, that's a really difficult job to have. You mean you have to taste cocktails for a year and a half?
0: Yeah. Well, there, there are some good fringe benefits, that's for sure. Um, uh, um, but, uh, yeah. tasting's hard work though. Um, you know, if you, uh, if you read some of the, uh, the books in the wine industry, um, I remember reading like Dennis Robinson is a famous, uh, a wine educator and master Psalm from, uh, uh, the UK. And she, you know, in her book, she was saying how she can't brush her teeth in the morning. And so she'd ride the tube to work, um, and like be hiding behind her, her mouth because she knew she had bad breath, but if she had brushed her teeth, you know, she's going to taste, you know, 75 wines, you know, before lunch, and that would, you know, throw a palate
1: off. Uh, Wow, that's, uh, that's, that's commitment to her job. Yeah, I know you have had a, uh, at least in college, you did a bit of creative writing, and looking at your at your website. Are you doing creative writing? I mean, some of this stuff like the 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 moonshiners, the bootleggers, the speakeasy guys, Martha's last name being outlaw, having a having a what a, a governor of of uh, of Tennessee in the family. I mean, this is this is some pretty crazy stuff. Did you make any of this up, or is this all true? It's a
0: hundred percent true, um, which makes it even more unbelievable. It's just funny you bring up the creative writing stuff. So. For the past like month or so, we've been going through old boxes, preparing to uh, leave our house after 18 years. And I found uh, some of my old uh, creative writing um, uh, papers that I've saved, I don't know why. I finally got rid of them. But there we had a visiting professor, uh, Sidney Lee, um, who came over, he was a a poet and an author and and he wrote fiction too. And uh, he was our visiting professor and I found his, typewritten end of semester evaluation of me and oh my God, did he rip me a new one. Um, so I took a picture and I sent it to our friend, our mutual friend Kristen Gould uh, who was in the class with me and she thought it was just hysterical. Um, so um, most of my uh, background in business has been in direct marketing, not brand marketing. So I spent a lot of time you know crafting words to elicit a positive response you know, take out your credit card, buy something or show up somewhere and do something. Um, so I think that has helped me more than the creative writing has in terms of uh, telling the story. Um, but it's all true, crazy as it might be. I mean, we, you know, we actually tone some of the stuff down because it just wouldn't be believable if I told you about well, you know, I can't tell you some of the stories about my grandfather, even though he's long gone. I think my dad would be upset if uh, I outed him out for you know the criminal uh, uh, that he was. So this is the right. grandfather
1: who who had the speakeasy in New York, right? Slooty, is that? Slooty, Yeah. Who who is a who you said was a a bantamweight? Uh, so bantamweight one fifteen to one eighteen. I don't know.
0: I, the, the crazy story about my grandfather fighting. It's a big is, guy
1: running a speakeasy.
0: No, a tiny guy. So World War I, he goes over to Europe and uh, um, he fights his way across Europe, not against the enemy, but against other U.S. soldiers. So they'd set up like a, you know, a makeshift ring somewhere and all the uh, army guys would bet. And my grandfather's a little puny Jewish guy from New York. And so all the guys in his company would always bet on him because they knew he was a championship boxer. And so the other company would get their biggest, burliest guy. And my grandfather would outlast him um, and then beat, beat him to a pulp and win all the money because everybody bet on the big guy and not the little guy. Finally, one of uh, the opposing companies had enough of this and thought that they had been swindled. So they, gra- they uh, ran my grandfather off- over with a truck. Um, and I think they broke both his legs. Oh, uh, So lucky for all of us descendants, they shipped him home because not too long afterwards, uh, his company uh, didn't do well in one of their battles. And I don't know if anybody survived. So, you know just crazy kind of, you know, stories there, um, that, uh, um, you know, are almost too wild to believe. Um, but, uh, there's a, one of my favorite brands is, uh, a, a, a gin called monkey 47. Um, and, uh, I've gone to their website, I have bought all their products. Um, I'd love to go to Bavaria and go check it out. And their whole brand story is so ridiculous. I almost want it not to be true because I want to give credit to whoever wrote this fiction, because it's just so it's the coolest story ever. But, you know, maybe it's true. Who knows? Um, so it's just, you know, yeah, you know, some brands are created by, you know, what we used to call, you know, Madison Avenue, you know, ad guys, um, you know, now they're, you know, they're data driven MBAs. Um, yeah. And then others, you know, are, you know, real, uh, you know, have real familial connections to things. Um, I visited a a whiskey producer in Fallon, Nevada, and uh, uh, they've lived on that ranch since, uh, you know, I don't remember what year, but like four or five generations. They farm the land, they grow the grain, they make the spirits they distill it, they make the mash, they distill it and they bottle it, everything right there on the ranch. Um, So yeah, it just has a, um, you know, I I think in this day and age, people want to know the story behind the product, whatever that, you know, whatever that product is, whether it's a car or a drink um, and that, that affinity gives them uh, you know, more depth
1: uh, in terms of enjoyment. When you started digging into it, Did you kind of come to the realization of like, oh, we're supposed to do this? Because you didn't necessarily, both of you didn't really know the the extent of sort of the speakeasy on your side, the moonshining on on Martha's side until you really dug into it, right? And did that, did you kind of go, huh? maybe we're supposed to, you get the peer pressure. I love this, the, that you were saying, we get peer pressure from our friends to go into the alcohol business. Like, this is perfect. You're going into the alcohol business, you've got peer pressure, you've got this history. Is there a point where you just go, maybe we're supposed to do this?
0: You know, I never thought of it that way. We really did the digging after we launched the business. It's like, well, we got, you know, the about us stuff is just sort of the started off just the boring stuff you know yeah i was in a vegas bar blah 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 you know did it in my wine cellar you know anybody could have you know you know we got a couple paragraphs for the website and it was like okay we're done and it's like yeah that's just so ho-hum you know how do we personalize this and it's like you know hey you know martha did you know that my grandfather ran a speakeasy (laughs) and she's like really and then you know martha telling me that her junior high science fair project was to make a working still like you took that to school yeah my dad helped me make it and we brought it to school yeah the principal wasn't very happy about it but you know that's east Tennessee for you like wow this, you know this would be really cool to put you know in the uh, about us uh, uh section of our website um so yeah it was definitely you know uh, an afterthought and it wasn't a uh it wasn't something that catalyzed us towards, you know, going down this path.
1: And and did she win? No. No. She was lucky. She was lucky she didn't get suspended. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But so with the whole evolution of, of the business, coming up with this story of the peer pressure to get into the business... But also you were talking about like the Seattle stuff where you where you got immersed in in food that was different. I mean, I don't know about you, but food in some ways when you're growing up food is food is fuel. But this is food for enjoyment.
0: And Uh, so. It's weird, like, you know, we would joke that, you know, the only thing my mom could make, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this in case she watches it. Uh, she won't make it this far. She doesn't have the attention span. But we, we would joke that the uh, only good thing that my mom could make was uh, reservations. Um, and, uh, um, you know, just growing up, it was just, you know, we were kind of a pizza and Chinese food uh, you know, kind of family. Um I wanna say around 1988, I decided to become a vegetarian. Um, and uh, then I moved to Memphis, Tennessee. So I, couldn't, I never ate any barbecue or any, any of that kind of stuff, but got really boring being vegetarian. So I added fish and chicken, and uh, there's no good fish or chicken and you know, other than catfish in, in the South. And then I moved to Seattle and it's like, wow, look at all this crazy seafood and all this wonderful produce. And yeah, it really was, um, uh, you know, something clicked for me that, um, you know, it was more than just fuel. It was more than just something to do uh, to, uh, you know, because it was breakfast time or lunchtime or dinner time. And I took all sorts of cooking courses at my, one of my favorite restaurants, Chef William at Mistral, um, we cooked, goose and we cooked all sorts of crazy stuff. And I learned just some basic skills. And, you know, that to me, that was almost as enjoyable as the the final product, you know, going to the market. And this is well before the days of any of these TV shows, you know, reality shows or the cooking shows. But, you know, literally every night in Seattle for me was Iron Chef, like go to Pike's Place Market or go to Mutual Fish and see what looks good and then figure out what to do. Um, And it was just, it was just, I I mean, I just looked forward to it um, so much. And then throwing all the wine in there too, and, uh, you know, having access to not just the wine, but the winemakers and the wine country and uh, going out into the, uh, into the fields and meeting the workers and the owners. And I mean, it's just the coolest, coolest experience. And all that just added to the pleasure of the preparation or the consumption at the end.
1: Well, it's, and, and we've got to give your mother some props, too, because she was integral in your Negroni because because she went to an upscale hotel in Italy and sent it back, sent her Negroni back three times because it didn't meet your standards. Is that is that actually a real story?
0: It's pretty. It's, it's that's pretty close. So my mom gifted Martha and I some crystal. Um, I don't know why, but she did. And so, whenever my mom came over to our house, she liked to have her drink in her glasses that she had gifted to us. And uh, um, over many, many, many years, you know, she decided that the drink she liked at our house was the Negroni. Now, I didn't bore her with any of the gory details as to how many variations, you know, we were on and barrel aging or any of that stuff. I just made her a Negroni and served it to her in her glass. Mm-hmm. So she went to a very fancy Italian restaurant in her town at Greenwich, Connecticut. And, uh, um, and yeah, she sent her Negroni back three times. And finally the manager said, you know, maybe you should have a glass of wine. And she's like, well, you can't make a Negroni like my son. And, you know, a Negroni, you know, pretty much is an easy drink to make. It's only got three ingredients in equal parts, gin, vermouth, and Campari. But once you've had our Negroni and it's been barrel aged, you know, you're spoiled. So yeah, it was definitely um, a turning point for me in thinking that ignorant, I don't mean that in a bad way, just people that weren't exposed to the background and the story um, could taste it and really appreciate it. Um, without knowing all those things so I'm thinking look if my mom could appreciate it and tell the difference and be unsatisfied with a 18 dollar Negroni at a fancy Italian restaurant you know maybe we're on to something here
1: the light bulbs have to go on sometimes for you don't you I mean it's sort of like you have to have that that hand in your back pushing you forward going Oh, okay. Maybe we do. Have, maybe you know. Maybe we know something that we didn't think we knew. How much of it is the social part of it? I mean, it seems like this was born in the social part. Like even just the learning to cook, the experience of going through the cooking, the, the finding finding the produce, finding the you know whatever you're going to pair it with the wine, all of that. But then also with your product. How much of that is the social of like bringing people, bringing people together in conversation, and something that they share in in common?
0: Yeah, you know, I'd say it's just the opposite. Um, up until recently, um, because you know we we're entering a entered an industry where we had zero contacts, yeah. we had zero, you know, LinkedIn uh, uh, connections, <laughs> um, we had zero, you know, social network in this space whatsoever. Um, so it was really, uh, almost antisocial, changing industries and starting from scratch also into an industry where, you know, people are entrenched, you know, not just for years or decades, but generations. I mean, you know, centuries, if you go back to, you know, you know some of the stuff that's been made for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, I say it's changed because we've, um, uh, you know, partnered with friends and family to allow them to invest in uh, in Barrelsmith to help us grow the business beyond sort of the Matt and Martha show, um, and so it definitely has flipped a bit. Where you know, using you know our uh, our brand and design agency, our co-packer, some of our suppliers, you know, they're definitely not just believers in the brand, but believers in Matt and Martha, and also. You know part of our social network now um, so yeah it really it really started off as uh, not knowing a single soul and uh, uh, it's really changed over the you know past three or four years into now feeling um, you know part of the family so to speak but you know we never were really looking to say hey look you know if we bottle this we're gonna bring families together um, you know because there's been alcohol doing that for millennia um so that that, there is already that blueprint
1: that you know um
0: you put some drinks in people and for the most part they're gonna uh, socialize they're
1: gonna start talking and they share something you showed us that bottle it's a bottle it's kind of interesting in that it looks like it's been around for a long time i mean it looks like a bottle that could be that you go, oh, wow, like there's, because this is part of, as you're talking about, the, the, the alcohol business it, are these families who've been in it for generations and generations. And, yes. and this looks like something that has some weight to it. It has some history. And so
0: um, our bottle story is just crazy. So you, know, you make all these decisions um, with a new product. You know, what's the ABV going to be of the liquid? Um, what's it going to taste like? What's the label going to look like? What's the closure going to be? Is it going to be wood? Is it going to be cork? Is it a screw tap? Is it got shrink seal on it? You know, how big is the barcode? You know, a million different things. But what we did is, uh, you know, Martha and I just trolled uh, liquor store aisles. You know, you know, spent tens and tens of hours just looking at other bottles. And uh, when we launched Barrel Smith, there really wasn't sort of a section for premium, ready-to-serve um, brands. There's kind of the industry uh, then and still is dominated by single-serve, low ABV cans. We knew we didn't want to be in there. So we figured we're going to end up in the whiskey aisle or the gin aisle or, or whatever. So we needed to stand out. Yeah, so, so our model shape is inspired by a cocktail shaker. Mm-hmm. in terms of the paper and the height and the size and the shoulder and what have you um and uh, uh you know it, it took forever just to settle on a bottle and of course now we're changing it so there you go
1: <laughs> what about because, the stopper you mentioned the stopper what did you get yeah.
0: so because we're you know a premium product so our um shelf price suggested retails 38 dollars for 750 so i very much wanted to have a cork stopper mm-hmm. um, as opposed to uh, plastic uh, or fake cork or screw top um, but i also wanted to have wood on top too one of my pet peeves is when the cork comes off the wood in other bottles it happens more than you think so i wanted to have a very very Secure um, method of attaching those two. And then we picked, uh, we put our um, little uh, barrel logo. Uh, so that is, so the wood is stained and then laser etched with our barrel with a cocktail pick going through it, which then of course we trademarked that icon. So, yeah, so there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into it more than just the um, manufacturer and supplier. There's the whole legal side of it too. So, you know, to build a brand, you have to have a lot of intellectual property that's protected so the brand has value. So yeah, we uh, uh, copyrighted uh, um, yeah, we copyrighted the icon, we trademarked Barrel Smith. Um, right before we printed the labels, we got a notice from the US Patent and Trademark Office that one of the big um, multinational, multi-billion dollar companies was objecting to our trademark application for Barrel Smith. And it's like, literally stop the presses, don't print the labels until we figure this out. But uh, yeah, so we, um, uh, we uh, David slew Goliath in that battle and we got Beryl Smith and we got to get out of jail letter from them too, saying that they would not come after us in the future. So, um, you know, it's just like all those little tiny things that go into something that everybody just sort of takes for granted. And then you got the feds involved too. So there's something called a certificate of label approval uh, a cola is the acronym. So every label has to be approved by the federal government. You have to have a cola. So you, your formula has to be approved. And for certain cocktails, there is a cocktail book. Um, and there's maybe only like 50, you know, cocktails like margarita, daiquiri, Manhattan, uh, an old fashioned, things like that. And the book says, well, if you're going to call it uh, old fashioned, it has to be made You know something like this if you're going to call it a daiquiri it has to be made something like this so you have to you know subscribe to those rules um the ttb doesn't allow you to say uh, barrel aged um on a cocktail for whatever reason so ours says uh, cocktails finished in oak barrels (laughs) there's crazy stuff
1: like that finished aged does it mean the same thing yeah
0: probably But, but yeah yeah the consumer does to the lawyers it doesn't
1: it's entirely different right yeah
0: yeah you have all these age statements in alcohol whether it's wine or spirits you know so straight whiskey means i think it means a minimum of two years in oak um and you know you have various age statements on the label if you say it's a eight-year-old whiskey it has to be aged in barrels for eight
1: years now there's a process to all of this. And you've talked about some of the process of getting to the bottle, but then getting from the bottle when you pour, when you pour the drink in. So your, your drink is, is ready to go. And I, I saw one interview where you said that Martha actually has, has a bottle in the freezer so that it's ready to go without having it to be, be iced. But it's, but it's interesting, the nuance, right? Cause in that you were talking about that you're, you're at 35 uh, 35, what did you call it? Because it? Which is effectively like 70 proof, right? What, what we would call proof kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so proof's an interesting concept if you want to go down a little tangent here. So, and again, there's no, you know, there's no um, authority here that is going to say the story I'm about to tell you is 100% accurate. But you know, the whole idea behind proof was that um, the sailors in the British Navy were allotted a certain amount of alcohol every day, um, and it's not because they were alcoholics, but you couldn't drink the water. So you take your alcohol, you mix it with your water, and hopefully that would kill all the bugs in there. But you know the sailors didn't trust the officers or the navy, so they wanted proof that the alcohol they were getting was actually not watered down, and or you know maybe just had water leaked into it or whatever. So they pour a little bit on gunpowder and then light it. And if it was, if it lit up, then it was proof that that was strong enough alcohol. And that's where a hundred proof comes from. Um, so that just means that you know, at 50% alcohol by volume, if you pour it on gunpowder, it's gonna
1: flame up. Exactly.
0: So that's why we talk in terms of proof and we talk in terms of ABV. ABV alcohol by volume, um, which is uh, exactly half of proof. Exactly half
1: of proof, right, exactly. So 35%. And and what you were saying that was interesting to me was that you were talking about it being hot, that it was already, that, that so if it's coming out of the freezer, it's not mixed with the ice, which takes away some of the percentage or adds a bit more percentage of water to it and reduces the heat the alcohol content what is that process for you of pouring it of pouring your drink into a glass how does it work with the ice with the mixer with the your mother your mother's crystal glass
0: yeah so i think there's another example of where martha and i are uh definitely aligned on this um so you know, it was just fascinating as part of the product development. Um, I went to Vegas and I sat in the boardroom of uh, the largest liquor distributor in North America at at their Vegas office. And they had, you know, the cocktail equivalent of sommeliers and I had prototypes and literally sweated through my suit. Maybe the last time I wore a suit, come to think of it. But anyway, um, you know, their view was that you know, I needed to increase the ABV a bit to account for dilution. They were tasting it without any ice and they were saying it tastes perfect now, but, you know, through ice dilution, you know, it's going to get a little watered down and you wanted it to taste like this. And I just thought that they were, I didn't think they were pompous, but I just thought that, you know, they're splitting hairs and nobody is going to be able to taste that. So when it came time for what's called bottle proofing, so um, like when whiskey comes out of, or liquor comes out of a still, um, depending on what kind of liquor it is, it's anywhere from you know, 120 to 190 proof. Um, so it's undrinkable if, to most people. <laughs> so you add water to it to get it to be bottle proof, what you're gonna put on the label, what you're gonna sell it at. Um, so when it came time to determine what we should bottle proof our, um, uh, our cocktails, We just did an experiment and we said, all right, well, let's taste from 25 to 35% ABV. And I thought, you know, this is BS. We're never going to taste the difference. Well, it was just remarkable. Like, you know, you got to be kidding me. Um, You know, we we could taste the difference between 30 and 31. And so that's how we decided on 30% ABV for the Boulevardier and the Negroni and 35 for the Manhattan, we just, so higher just means higher ABV in the industry lingo. Um, and it was just trial and error. What did we think would be best? So, um, uh, you know, I like to serve the cocktails the way I like to serve them. We're very careful in our voice to the customer that there are no rules. You know, if you bought it, drink it any way you like. I like to shake, uh, I'm sorry, I like to uh, pour the Manhattan over Rocks. Serve it with a Luxardo Italian cherry. Now there's some good uh, um, artisanal cherries from the U.S. as well. Like Filthy Cherry is a good one too. But don't use like a cheap grocery store cherry. The cherry really makes a drink. Um, believe it or not. Um, and square but, um,
1: square uh, ice cubes
0: as well. No, I'm not a big fan of square ice cubes. They're a pain in the neck. I mean, if you're going to go to the trouble of like doing something crazy with ice, get an ice wall press and use that. I mean, that's fun and ridiculous. Uh, make clear ice. And then there's this, this um, big uh, uh, chunk of aluminum that uses, uh, um, I don't know, I think it's like the second law of thermoid, the dynamics or something. And then it shapes the ice into a sphere. Um, but I don't think it literally compresses it, but it acts like it compresses it and just doesn't melt. Um, I was at the W Hotel in Miami. Gosh, how many years ago was that? Maybe 15 years ago with uh, my buddy, John Frazier. And we're sitting at the bar and like this crazy mixology guy um, is at the bar and he's like slapping basil and creating all this crazy foo-foo stuff. And he's got this big ice ball press and both uh, John and I call BS on him. And he's like, oh, you don't believe it, do you? Um, So he took one, made an ice ball and put it in a glass and then filled another glass with ice. We sat there in the Miami heat and the glass with ice cubes just melted like straight away. And the ice sphere, you know, didn't melt. I mean, it was like, like Wow, it must it must mean something. Um, but anyway, I like the Manhattan on the rocks with a cherry. I like to. Um, what about stirring? Are you? I don't. I don't think you got to stir it because you just. It's that's called a built drink when you build it in the glass. And with a Manhattan, all you're building it is by just pouring it, and you're done. You're done. Right?
1: But oh, okay. I thought I thought from looking at some of this that there was there was sort of to get it all cool into the same temperature kind of thing. So
0: for the Boulevardier and the Manhattan, I'm sorry, the Boulevardier and the Negroni. What I prefer to do is to chill a coupe. So fill a, a coupe glass with ice and water, so it gets nice and cold. And then take a cocktail mixing glass, fill that with ice, pour the Boulevardier or Negroni in there, stir it with a spoon. I mean, well, there's people that say you got to stir it 20 times clockwise, 20 times counterclockwise. You know, there's all sorts of crazy things there. Um, and then uh, dump the ice water out of the coop and then stream um, the chilled Bovardier or Negroni into that coop. And I like to finish that with just a little orange twist. Um, and that's the way I like to serve it. Um, Cause I think that's got the right balance of dilution and chilled factor. Um, but again, that's just, that's my way. You know, Martha keeps a bottle in the freezer. Um, I didn't, I don't drink it that way, but you know, You can do whatever you want with it, really. Uh, I haven't heard anybody like creating new cocktails with it. I thought for sure people would be like taking our barrel finished cocktails and then like adding more stuff to it as a base cocktail. But um, I guess it's so good. Nobody feels the need to try and improve upon it.
1: Have you had any of that, the occasion when somebody's come up to you and said, oh, you're barrel Smith?
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was on a, my first sales call in Northern Nevada, I went into um, this liquor store in Sparks, Nevada. And uh, I went into the store and the manager wasn't there. It's was just a clerk behind the counter. And I introduced myself and I told her all about it. And she's like, oh, I've heard of you. And she's like, what? I'm like, what? How, you know, we're not even in the state yet. I don't think we're in for sale. She's like, yeah, you're in the back shelf over there. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I went back there and there we were. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. For Um, sale on
1: the back shelf.
0: Yeah, yeah, we were in the store. Go figure. I I didn't even know. So I signed all the bottles and uh, put little bottleneckers on with some of our awards and said goodbye to the clerk. And then went out to the parking lot where I was meeting the reps, actually not the reps, the SVP and the VP for our distributor in the state. Um, so this was during COVID. Nobody's allowed to have in-person meetings, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I was up there visiting accounts on my own because I couldn't be with the sales reps. And so we were just coordinating, you know, a time that we could just say hi. And so we decided to meet in that parking lot um, in the slicker store in Sparks, Nevada. So I'm in a, in the parking lot, like loading my little bag into my trunk of my rental car and they pull in and uh the two of them walk out and we introduce each other and we start having small talk and blah 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 and then some guy comes out of the liquor store sleeveless shirt you know ball cap on and he's like you know runs over to us where we're having like this impromptu meeting in the parking lot right and he goes,
1: meeting yeah
0: Matt from Barrelsmith. smith what is going on here and I go, yeah, he goes and he pulls out a bottle of Manhattan out of his shopping bag. I just bought this. This is the coolest thing ever. I can't wait to try it. And I'm like, you're our first customer in the state. Here's a Barrel Smith hat. Let me autograph the bottle, personalize it for you. Blah, blah, blah. And the, the SVP and the VP from the distributor are like, did you pay an actor to, to make that happen? So, yeah, that was a pretty cool uh Um, you know, two back to back with a perfect audience to show the power of Aerosmith. Uh, that's pretty cool.
1: And you didn't hire the actor, I'm I'm assuming. No,
0: it was, I see, that's the good, you know, that's a good marketer would have done that, but um, you know, I'm just passable, not maybe a great marketer would have done that, figured out how to arrange all that.
1: So, so what is next? You said you're working on these three other cocktails. It sounds like you're not allowed to tell us what those three other cocktails are.
0: No, I can, uh, um, I can share with you. So it's important to understand what our uh, brand promises for barrelsmith. Smith. Again, we didn't build a product-centric country, company. We're building a brand-centric company for a variety of business reasons. Um, so our brand promise is barrel-aged craft cocktails. Um, And our price point is premium, our packaging is premium. And we have our little uh, variety pack here with 300 ml bottles, very premium. It tells the Matt and Martha story on the side. Um, So that's our brand promise to the consumer, but also the uh, distribution chain too. So we have to come up with craft cocktails um, that are classics pretty much. Um, and they have to be improved through the barrel aging process. So our three current cocktails are all you know, similar in color. They all have vermouth in it and they have a strong base spirit. Um, they also have quite a you know, long history of people experimenting with barrel aging. Um, let's call it 20 years, you know, not long uh, in the spirits world, but long uh, in barrel aging world, in the cocktail world uh, they also don't have any live fruit juice in them either. Right. So that's kind of, I think why people started experimenting with barrel aging, these cocktails. So we have a whisk, we have a bourbon whiskey, rye whiskey, and a gin, um, based cocktail. Uh, and what we're looking to do is, well, how about if we came up with three other popular spirits, vodka, tequila, and rum.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: These are kind of dark in color and sort of fall, winter, spring cocktails. Not necessarily summer cocktails either. You know tequila and lime. You know rum and lime. Uh, you know uh, vodka and cranberry. Those are a little lighter, summery um, uh, uh, drinks. So that's the kind of direction we're going there. The issue is there really isn't any, you know, history or roadmap behind barely aging, any of those cocktails. Um, I mean, we could make a Negroni, I don't remember what it's called, like a Tegroni, you know, where you use tequila instead of gin, okay. but that's pretty close to our existing Negroni. Um, but, you know, it's just been really hard for us, you know, cause we're, we're inventing as opposed uh, on our own in that space, as opposed to just sort of improving on what other people had already come up with. Okay. Um, so we can't use any live fruit juice because then we can't put it in a barrel because it will go bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, but still t- staying true to the uh, uh, taste profile of what a cosmopolitan or a mm-hmm. Um, Hemingway Daiquiri or Rum Runner or a Paloma or a Margarita might be, Um, but just improving on that and making it a more sophisticated taste of the experience. You know, to that end, we've uh, uh, sought out spirits providers where the base spirits are good. Mm -hmm. So we've got a blend, a rum blend um, that we think will work really nice. So that's already seen time in a barrel. We've got a tequila, uh, from an exporter in Mexico um, that um, sorry seen some time in a barrel, and uh, that will be nice too. And then vodka, uh, we've got sort of identified as well, but we just haven't been able to put it all together with the right flavor profile where it's going to, it's just going to be something that every, that 90% of the judges are going to agree on like, wow, This is a great fill in the blank here, whatever we come up
1: with. Then it's going to be up to your standard. And you're going with all clear. uh, Those are three clear alcohols, right? As opposed to like an Añejo kind of thing going on more on the silver side of the tequila.
0: No, we're doing a Reposado tequila. You are. So here's the crazy thing is that um, the Mexican government doesn't allow you to export 100% blue agave tequila in bulk you know, like the French with their wine, the Mexican government is determined to keep uh, the tequila brand, or at least 100% blue, whatever agave tequila, um, true. And to do that, they want to make sure everything's bottled in Mexico. So that's not going to work for us, but, you know, I don't want to use, you know, crappy tequila. Um, So it's been a year and a half fight to figure out how to export good tequila in bulk, so that, you know our cocktails taste good right um i mean i could buy halfway decent agave spirits that are made here in the u.s or in india or somewhere else but then i can't put tequila on the label and you know our consumer audience might not buy it then because you know can you make a paloma with agave spirits or a margarita with agave of course you can would anybody be able to taste the difference Probably not, but is somebody gonna buy it when they look on the label, you know, it doesn't say tequila, maybe not. So I finally figured that out after like a year and a half of legal bills and crazy stuff. And so I've got our first bulk shipment of tequila uh, coming to our co-packer. So we'll have uh, a lot of tequila that we can experiment with. And Anyway, it's a Reposado tequila. So it's, uh, I think it's 18 months is the minimum age standard for a Reposado. Okay. Uh, and then our rum is also aged as well so obviously the vodka is clear but uh, our rum uh, and our tequila has got some color to it
1: is is that the fun part the the making of the new drinks is the fun part the pouring of the drinks is the fun part the selling of the drinks how what, what's the fun part for you
0: I think the fun part is like for the first time in my career is being involved in like a physical product as opposed to a digital product and pouring and seeing people actually enjoy that product. Either like I was in the supermarket last week here in Wilton, Connecticut and a friend of mine, you know, a guy I know in town, not a very good friend, you know, hey, I had a bottle of Barrelsmith Smith Bovardier. It's the greatest thing ever. And it's like, that's a pretty cool thing to have happen to you in the supermarket, you know, whereas if he, if I didn't make it and he didn't drink it, you know, we might've just given each other the nod and the produce aisle and kept going. But, you know, he was so excited about it that he decided to come over and tell me how much he loved it. Um, So yeah, without a doubt, that, that is the most cool part to actually make something physical that people enjoy to the point that they come over to you and tell you, feel the need to tell you that, you know, you did a solid by making something great.
1: Even after all the awards and everything, is that still a pinch me a moment where where you're going, really, really, you really like our stuff?
0: Yeah, I think much more so than the awards, because you know, the awards, you know, I bubble wrap a bunch of bottles, write a check, ship it off, you know, I'm not there to see what's going on or what have you. Although anonymous
1: almost, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um in a couple of weeks, there's a, uh, this event called Bar Convent Brooklyn. Um, and it's a trade uh, show for the bar industry, and there's a, another award um, group uh, or award uh, that's uh, part of the Ma- Chilled magazine, and Chilled is a magazine for bartenders and people in the bar industry, and I, on the lark, I submitted Beryl Smith to the Chilled awards contest thinking that bartenders aren't going to like this you know they want to make their own negroni they don't want you know blah 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 whatever um but anyway i'm going to the awards banquet um at barcom in brooklyn in a couple of weeks so that would be kind of cool if we actually won an award and i had to go up there uh or martha and i had to go up there and accept it that, that would be kind of that'd be kind of fun but that would be a, um i guess it's a long shot but definitely possible uh, but yeah, that, that psychic reward going into a store, a liquor store and having the staff there go, we love your product. Um, we tell everybody about it, you know, everybody's buying it. I mean, that is the coolest thing. And then just random, literally random people on the street, uh, coming up to you and going, you know, I really like it. You know, you know, our neighbor next door here used to be a, uh, Tito's and soda guy. Mm-hmm. Um, And now he just drinks bottles of Boulevardier and he doesn't like bourbon. And this is, you know, one third bourbon. And, you know, he goes, you know, he's probably our biggest customer in town. So, you know, it's just, that's just, that's just great.
1: That sounds like a ton of fun. And your point about the bartenders, you're not necessarily putting bartenders out of business. They'll continue to make these drinks, but you're making it at a, at a a standard that, that most people just can't do. I mean, this barrel aging of the drinks is something that is cost prohibitive for all but like the, the very top restaurants. Is that right?
0: Yeah, there's probably, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bars and restaurants that have barrel aging programs uh, in the US. Um, but, you know, there's probably millions uh, that don't. Um, so yeah, if you if you can invest the time um, to do barrel aging right. A lot of people don't do barrel aging right. You know, they have a barrel in the back bar and they fill it with a bunch of liquid and then they drain it one glass at a time. And then they say, okay, you know, now it's time to put more liquid in. You don't know, you're not, you know, moderating the, the, the length of aging and you know, keeping it consistent and, and standard. So you might get a good one, you might get a bad one
1: continuing um, to but those fluctuate are, as it stays in the barrel yeah yeah
0: um so uh in certain circumstances where speed to service is important um and uh a premium cocktail is important and you might not have the uh the laborer that can do a good job um making cocktails uh barrels is a good answer uh, uh we pitched uh, our local uh, restaurant here in wilton uh, a couple of years ago, um, right when we first launched, and the bar manager was like, "Yeah, uh, we're not we're not going to do that. You know, we got our own bartenders, and we don't need anybody help." Blah blah blah. I'm like, "Okay, no biggie. We'll still, we'll still come in and sit at the bar, and you know, have a cocktail." And then I want to say about six months ago, I got a text from a friend who was dining at the restaurant. And she took a picture of the cocktail menu. And it's the now serving Beryl Smith, Manhattan, Boulevardier, and Negroni. I'm like, what? So I go into the into the bar and I went up to Patrick, the bar manager. I'm like, hey, Patrick, I'm and he goes, I know who you are. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm in trouble. Somebody forced him to do it, you know, against his will. And you know, I thought, oh, I've started off on the wrong foot. I'm like what happened? You said you didn't, you didn't want to carry our brand. And I got a picture from my friend Vera that, you know, here it is on the menu. He's like, well, it's not just on the menu. It's on the bar. And I'm like, looking at the back bar, gone. I don't see it. He goes, it's on the front bar, not the back bar. Nobody ever puts bottles on the front bar. It's the craziest thing. I'm like, what happened? He's like, because of the pandemic labor shortage, I can't hire a bartender. Everyone I hire, I got to fire within a week because they don't know how to make a cocktail. You know, you, this works for us now. I was like totally blown away. And every time I go in there, there's three bottles of Barrel Smith on the front bar by the beer taps. You know, bar. so,
1: so explain the difference between the front bar and the back bar, because people might not know.
0: Like so the front, bar, the front bar is where you come up and you order your cocktail. Right. And they have beer taps usually on the front bar. There's never any spirits on the front bar. That's where people order their drinks, eat their meals, you know, whatever. Um, but they do have the beer taps usually on the front bar so people can see what's on tap. The back bar is where all the liquor is on various different uh, shelf heights. That's where all the spirits are kept. And then down below, you have your ice you know, machines, your uh, wash up sinks and refrigerators for bottles and things like that. So yeah, uh, Patrick put uh, put the barrel, the bottles, all three of them on the front bar, right next to the beer taps, so everybody could see them and put them on the drink special on the menu for the dining room. Like, you know, wow, you're my hero! Thank you. I'm like, what can I do to help you? He's like, I don't need any help. It's, you know, people see it, they taste it, they like it, and they buy more. So, you know, from a business perspective, speed to service doesn't require. So, speed to service means that you've got to You've got 150 people that are showing up for the ballet or whatever. And, you know, they want a cocktail before they go to sit in their seats. They don't want to wait in line while well, you make, you know, a Negroni or a gin and tonic or whatever. So just pour it in a glass and you're done. Um, doesn't require any skill, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and then the margins are healthy, too, from a restaurant owner's perspective. You can charge a premium for it because it's barrel-aged. So if your well Negroni is X, you can charge 30% more than, or 50% more than X for a barrel-aged Negroni. Your cost of goods is going to be higher, but your uh, uh, actual dollar profit is going to be higher than if you were selling a well Negroni. Uh, And then there's like, you know, there's no waste of materials too, you know, because you're just pouring them out of the bottle. So for many establishments, a pre-blended cocktail makes sense. Not all. If you're at a three-star Michelin restaurant, you know, they probably have a barrel aging program or they don't want one. You know, if you're at the Alibi in 1983, you know, you're just not uh, uh, preaching to the right choir there. So, uh, uh, but for many places in the middle, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Where can people find you?
0: So um, one of the challenges for us is to keep our uh, retail locator feature on our website up to date. Um, It's just because we're, we currently sell in Vermont, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Florida, California, and Nevada. And almost each one of those states has different, you know, reporting and ordering methodologies. So, you know, the information doesn't like really come in in any sort of, um, Homogenous or actually harmonized fashion, so it's just it's just a, a nightmare, but we, we do the best we can. Um, so you can go to barrelsmith.com go on the website to shop now. you can order online people can of- order
1: even if they're not in those states.
0: Yeah, so some of those states will ship to a total of I think 25 or thirty states now um, so and if you're in any of those states, you can go to the retail locator and find uh, the nearest uh, retail store to you. Um, so like down in Florida, we're only in South Florida. Uh, California, we've got a couple places in San Fran, a couple in LA. We're in over a hundred uh, stores in our home state of Connecticut. Uh, we're in 25 in Vermont and a handful in New York and New Jersey. Um, so yeah, you can order online if you're lucky enough to live in one of those 25 or 30 States or um, you can go to your local liquor store if you're in, uh, one of those uh, states I mentioned, and um, buy it there or have them special order uh, for you.
1: Have you? I mean, you just told the story of that restaurant, or that bar that you went to, your hometown bar that didn't want it, and then and then now has it on the front bar. Is there? Have there been a place that you've gone into that you've said, "Wow, we're here! Like this is the this is the coolest the coolest bar to be in! Like we've arrived."
0: Um, We really aren't in too many bars and restaurants yet. Okay. Uh, But I definitely had that aha moment going into liquor stores, Um, whether it's our local favorite store or like a big chain store. I mean, it's just really cool to go in there and see your bottle on the shelf and, you know, go up and talk to the, uh, the manager or the clerk or whoever. And, it's just really cool, and then just like being in the store, sometimes we just sell bottles to customers. Like, you know, I'll be standing at the shelf, looking at it, taking pictures or whatever, and you know, somebody will come up and go, "Well, what are you doing?" And I'm like, "Oh, you know, I made this," and they're like, "You made that?" I'm like, "Yeah, Martha and I." Blah blah blah. I'll tell them the story, and they're like, "I got to try it." I'm like, "Well, do you want me to autograph a bottle for you?" I happen to have a paint pen in my pocket, and they're like, "That'd be great, sure." The other really cool thing we did is uh, doing some of this uh, tastings is like Martha and I will uh, trade off doing the tastings. And we'll just have this friendly competition to see who can sell more bottles. And oftentimes the stores don't believe that we're going to sell as many bottles as we do. And so it's just like, we sell out all their bottles and they're like, wow, that was
1: crazy. So then they want you back. Obviously you're good for business.
0: Yeah. We've been back to one store like four or five times.
1: That's awesome. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, this is just, this has just been fun. It just, it sounds cool. You're, you're spreading great cheer to so many people. So thanks for joining us.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, uh, It was really uh, great to see you again and to uh, tell some of these crazy stories of which they're all true. The even crazier part.
1: That is the crazier part, but that's also the great part. Uh, Thanks to all of you for tuning in. We are so excited that you wanted to come join us today. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please tell your friends. Please like us. Please follow us. We'll come back with another great story next week. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Whitehall Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.